tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Welcome along to the second hour of uh, Tip Today. Now, thank you for all of your queries for Anne Darcy, our nutritionist. And uh, what we'll do is that we'll stack them all up and uh, we'll have uh, a slot with Anne where she just answers your questions. Okay, because there's so many of them over the last while we couldn't get to half of them uh, today but thank you for that we will stack them up and we will talk to her specifically next week on the programme about those uh, queries Legal discussion on tip today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors with me in studio morning to you John uh, Good morning Good to see you today yeah. the, the, the statute of limitations you're going to talk to us about yeah. today is yeah. it as complicated as we might think John? Yeah, I think it's more complicated than it should be. Um, the statute lim- well, okay, let's be more specific. It's more to do with the fact that when you're dealing with the statute limitations in personal injuries, what they tried to do a couple of years back was when they introduced the statute of limitations first, the whole idea of the statute of limitations was that you had to have certainty, you know, you'd know mm. when you could uh, issue proceedings, when you could, you know, so there was a time limit within which you had to do it. And that worked for both sides, if you know what I mean, insofar as for somebody who's trying to run a business or somebody who's been involved in a situation, that they know that, you know, they're not hanging out there indefinitely. Mm. So that's the reason that the statute of limitations was introduced. And it's the reason for most time limits is that you have, there has to be a kind of some sort of an end uh, point in everything. So they, when they introduced it in 1957, from 1957 right up to 1991, there was always this kind of niggling kind of issue that wouldn't go away where people just didn't know in other words, that they were totally ignorant of the an injury. So, for example, the kind of classic one that you'd, you'd probably know about is asbestos. You know, people working with asbestos. Yeah. The hearing cases, for example, the army deafness cases. You know, the cases where people knew absolutely nothing about it. And the case that actually started it was Maitland and Swan, and Maitland and Swan, I know very well because, first of all, I suppose I did a master's in the statute of limitation a couple of years ago. And but Swan was a surgeon in Sligo, and when I started in Sligo as a young solicitor, and not realizing that there were certain kind of ground rules that would apply when you're a lawyer that you're not supposed to do, one of the things was I read the court rules and the court rules said that if a witness wasn't playing ball with you and wouldn't turn up for hearing, that you should issue a subpoena. So the self-same Dr Swan, who was a surgeon in Sligo General Hospital, was not giving playing ball with me and telling me that he'd turn up for the uh, high court that was coming up the following two weeks. So I, in my innocence, issued a subpoena and it all hell broke loose because it was kind of not the done thing to issue yes. subpoenas. 
actually I had quite a, an amount of experiences with uh, Sligo in terms of when I was initially learning how to do it I used to read the rules thinking well the rules were the rules and I, I remember I remember I remember that a very well-known uh, comedian who shall remain nameless for the moment anyway, unless people can guess who he is but a very well-known comedian now this is 30 some odd years ago was appearing at a show in Sligo and uh, before he went on before he went on for the show I he had been ignoring the fact that he owed a client of mine money and I had been writing letters to him and he had ignored the letters and I found out he was coming to Sligo and I asked a summons server to serve summons on him before he went to for the debt before he went on. Anyway, that's an aside. Uh, but back back to the case yes. in point. You've mellowed over the years, I've mellowed, which is great. Yeah. Mellowed. There are maybe other ways of doing it. But uh, in any way, he did pay, I have to say. Yes, I'll <laughs> he, bet you he did. The poor old devil didn't know anything about the debt. His agent was ignoring it. Yeah. So I think it was more to do with inefficiency than anything else. But anyway... It gave him something to say anyway when he was on stage. So you subpoenaed, uh, subpoenaed, I beg your pardon, the the surgeon. But anyway, as an aside, years later when I was studying the statute of limitations, the case that was the kind of seminal judgment that changed things in the late 80s was uh, this case, which was Maitland and Swan. And it involved a young girl who had had an operation where one of her ovaries was removed and she knew nothing about it. It was done at the time. Now, we've talked about medical negligence over the last number of weeks and one of the kind of basic cornerstones of the law prior to that, in the, in that, at that time in the 60s and 70s, was that, you know, doctors knew best and if a surgeon decided he was going to remove an ovary, he'd remove an ovary mm-hmm. because he, he was the best he was the one who knew kind of thing there was this kind of paternal attitude which has changed to a fairly dramatic degree over the last period of time but he did anyway and this girl knew nothing about it and she had had issues throughout her her adolescence and then into her adulthood she had issued a lot of issues and she only found out maybe 25 years later that this is what was the cause of all of her problems when a, a consultant told her this so I said well actually did you know that you had and went and looked up the records so she took a case against him and at the time the uh, law was the 1957 act was that you had three years it might have been five actually but you had three years from the date on which the cause of action accrued and this very kind of this is the starting point of any kind of interpretation of when you can take an action because the, the, the legislation says, you know, so many years, so six years, three years, two years, whatever, from the date on which the cause of action accrues. Right. So that was the very first kind of starting point for the court to say, well, what does that mean? What does cause of action accrued mean? And is this, that her operation? Was well, that the cause? Well that's, the, well, that's exactly the question. That's exactly the question the court posed. Because the court says, does that mean the date of the operation? Does it mean the date in which the injury was done? Or does it mean the date that you discovered that the injury was done? So last week I was talking about property damage. For example, you know, you build your house 
on dodgy foundations well you don't build but you know what I mean it's mm. built on, mm. on foundations that are badly done or something and you don't find out about it and the question that arises there or as I said last week if your solicitor stroke engineer expert whatever does something and they do it badly but you don't know anything about it or you don't find out anything about it or nothing arises as a result of doing it badly for a period of time. Yes. The Supreme Court very recently grappled with that very same question that was dealt with in Maitland and Swan however many years ago. I, I think it was, I was going to say it was 1987, I think was the case, but I could be wrong. But they grappled with the exactly same question that you asked. Well, is it the date of the operation or when is it? Mm. And in Maitland and Juan, and in the, actually the recent Supreme Court judgment said, by the way, just as a matter of interest, the recent Supreme Court decision said, asking the same question, is it the date that you pour the foundations? Is it the date that the damage manifests itself, which is the term that they use? So in other words, is it when it, it shows appears up, yes. or shows up, yeah. as you say. Mm. Or is is it when you find it, when you actually discover it? And the Supreme Court said it's actually the date that the damage occurs. So in other words, it's the, whenever you can prove that the damage occurred from a defendant's point of view, in other words, from the contractor's point of view, if the contractor could prove, well, OK, I poured the foundations in 1990, but... By 1996, the damage was was happening. In other words, there were serious cracks or whatever. So, and you, so to stay with that for a second, let's hear the house owner. You don't see the cracks for two or three years, then you may be out of time. Now it's six years, by the way, for breach of contract. So you'd you'd have six years in which mm. to decide whether or not you're going to take action on it. But. So come back to Maitland and Swan. Maitland and Swan, then the court was faced with this issue, very difficult issue, where somebody hadn't an absolute clue, knew nothing about it. And the Irish court didn't have the benefit of the UK legislation, which introduced a kind of a discoverability mm. test. So they didn't have that. So Bar J uh, in, the, in the High Court decided that there was a discoverability test in Irish law. He decided that, yes, it was the date on which she discovered, by virtue of the report given to her by the consultant, that, in fact, the act of removing the second uh, ovary was what caused the problem. Right. That went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, no, we don't have such a thing in Irish law. There is no such thing as discoverability. Unfortunately, the case is she's statute barred. And that then prompted the 1991 Act. And the 1991 Act introduced what we call the discoverability rule. So what the 1991 Act does is the 1991 Act says, OK, right, you've got a period now, two years, in which to take an action. Interestingly enough, actually, in the... It's the... 
I can't think of the, the legislation. The legislation is the legislation that's actually introducing the regulation of solicitors, switching it from the Law Society. So you'd imagine I should know. It's the Court Regulatory Act or something like that. But that legislation actually is trying to change, well, and hasn't done it yet, the two-year limitation period for personal injury, three years in medical negligence, just to give a little bit more breathing mm. space. Mm. Now, there is, the, the thing about that then is it's, it's two years from the date in which the cause of action accrues, if you go back to the point that I'm making, which is the starting point of mm. it. So the very first thing is, it's three years, or two years is the time period within which you have to take your case. But the 1991 Act introduced discoverability. So what what is that, you might ask? Well, it's that... I'd put it very simply, and it isn't simple, unfortunately. It's put like this. It is two years from the date on which the cause of action occur, accrues. Yeah, which the is, crash or the Yeah, the crash or, or the yeah. operation yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or the damage as a result of the operation, mm. if you know what I mean. Because, again, as I said to you, there is that little nuance there that it's not just the pouring of the foundations, it's not just the operation that was carried out. So it may very well be that the damage might occur for some time later, right. in which case there's a delay until the damage right. occurs. Or it could be the care following the... Yes, it the, could. Um, Exactly. The operation or whatever, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or you know, some some complication mm. that might arise sometime after the date mm. of the operation. But the this piece of legislation introduces the test that says if the person who is injured, if that person doesn't know first of all that they're injured, second, secondly, doesn't know that the injury is significant. Thirdly, doesn't know who caused the injury. And fourthly, doesn't know and hasn't enough information to set up a link between the person and or act that caused the injury and the actual injury itself. So it doesn't make the connection, if you like, between, in this instance, we're talking medical negligence, between the operation and, as you say, the aftermath, Mm. whatever that is. That in those circumstances, in those circumstances, the clock doesn't start to tick until they knew that. Now, that's fine. And that, to a certain extent, well, insofar as anything is fine when talking about law, because you'll always have the complication of interpretation. But they then kicked in the caveats on that. And the first caveat is that it's knowledge. How do you define knowledge? So knowledge is kind of broken into three bits. One, you actually knew it. Okay, so you have actual knowledge of whatever it is. Secondly, you've imputed knowledge. So in other words, you should have known that if you look at the facts that were there and present, you should have known from the facts that you could see or that were observable by you. And thirdly, that you should have known or should have had enough to know to go looking for expert advice to find out. So in other words, that you had enough information to start an inquiry to find out what was and whether there was something wrong or whether there wasn't wrong. And when they finished with that, when the legislation finished with that, it then decided to add another little complication to the mix. And the other little complication it added to the mix was that... 
it's not a question of proving your case. So in other words, they put this little rider, uh, little caveat in the section that said, this is not about having enough knowledge that you know you have a cause, that you have a case against somebody in law. So that little elephant, as I call it, in the room of kind of, so what exactly is it that you have to know? What you, what I can tell you that you don't need to know is that you have a case, a legal case against, in, in the case of medical mm. agents, the doctor or the hospital. That's what you don't need to know. But now, where the case law has has kind of wound its way through the years since 1991, is trying to determine what exactly is it that you should know or what exactly is knowledge do you need to have in order to start the clock. I, I, I need to take a break, so uh, just uh, we, we'll just leave it there for a moment. But the 1991... Yeah. Uh, decision then. Did that cause previous cases to be reopened? And No, no, because the 1991 Act would only apply from that date on. All right. So it would be only, but having said that, if there was a limitation period, yeah, no, no. Basically, law, I learned this in college a long time ago, that the big difference between law in our jurisdiction and Russia, and now at Russia at the time, if you know what I mean, was that in Russia they could make laws that would be retrospective, mm. that could go back however many years. Whereas in Ireland, if you make legislation, it only applies from that time on, by and large. Right. Very good. Even though I see the Speaker of the House of Commons bringing oh, up a law yeah, from 1600 and something. I love that's that. Cracker. All right, let, let's take a break. We're, John is staying with us. We're back in a moment. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. And uh, you're very welcome back. John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors uh, still with me and we're talking about the statute of limitations. You're concerned that it's very complex, but it is very complex. So what, oh, it do you, is. what do you do about it? You know? No, it is. But you see, the problem, what's made it a little bit more complicated is the fact that there's a couple of very different decisions about it. Now, I mean, I spent... Two years, two years, three years, well, when I say three years, I spent, I was doing a master's, running a business and rearing a family at the time. <clears throat> when I studied this initially, before it even hit the statute books, as in before it hit the case law on it, you know, and it's really, really, from the point of view, it's like all sorts of things. It looks very simple on the face of it. It's just when you start trying applying it to the facts of mm. any particular case, it came up for the very first case that kind of hit the headlines was the Neary case. You remember the Neary case where the surgeon in the Midlands yeah. did a, quite a considerable amount of uh, hysterectomies, totally and utterly unnecessarily. Uh, why you just kind of beggar's belief, beggar's belief. Yeah, yeah. but in that particular case there were two cases there was one case sorry both cases went to the Supreme Court and I think they highlight what I'm saying in that one case went one way and the other case went the other way and what I mean by that is the very first case that came up was on the question of knowledge what kind of knowledge could you attribute to the person taking the case, did they have enough knowledge to start the clock running? And enough knowledge to start the clock running kind of run, kind of, it kind of anchors into questions like, well, does the clock start running 
when you suspect there's something wrong? Does the clock start running when you go to see a solicitor? Does the clock start running if you make a complaint to the medical council? Does the clock start running if you go to the hospital and start saying, look, listen, what the hell went wrong here? Like, what's, what, what's the story? Does it start running when you get the medical records? So, in other words, when you get the medical records and there's enough information in it? Or does it start running or does it only start running when you get an expert opinion that tells you what went wrong in the whole situation? And therein lies the absolutely conundrum and the difficulty with this particular area because like all legal issues so much will depend not so much sorry so much will depend on the facts okay you've got the law you've got the facts and then you've got the application of the law to the facts so they're the that's the mixed the cauldron that you're putting the mm. case into mm. and if your law is difficult if your facts are difficult and if your application is going to vary depending on who's applying the facts, then it's very hard to predict outcome. So if you look at the Neary judgment, there were three judgments of the Supreme Court. <coughs> Excuse me. There were three judges that gave handed down judgments in the Supreme Court in the first Neary judgment. And the three judgments, the three judges was Hardiman, Gagan, and I can't remember the third judge. But the three judges that handed down, it was two to one. Two found that the statute of limitations had not run out and that the person was entitled to make their case and had made it within the appropriate time frame. And one judge decided, no, you were out of time. Now, the really interesting thing, and this is what makes law so kind of interesting in the study of it, maybe not so much when you're trying to apply it and advise people or when people are trying to determine outcome. And one of the kind of, as a side comment I would make on this is that the what is one of the most fascinating things about law on a day-to-day basis is that for every case that hits the Supreme Court and for every case that goes into the High Court, there are a huge number of cases that never go near the High Court or get settled on the way between the High Court and the Supreme Court. So in other words, when you're in the High Court, like Gillian was with me here a couple of weeks ago and she was telling you that quite a number of the cases we settled because our attitude is very much to try and resolve it if we can. So for the one that hits the High Court, there are maybe 25 others that are settled along the way. Mm. And funny, when I was, when I was sifting through the cases uh, yesterday, I won't say yesterday, say yesterday, I shouldn't have been doing any work yesterday, but anyway, when I was looking through the cases yesterday, one of the cases I came across was one case I was involved in myself in the High Court, which I appealed to the Supreme Court and it got settled on the way between the High Court and the Supreme Court. So the judgment of the High Court stood, so it looked like the law as stated in the High Court was correct. Mm. I, I don't, didn't, wouldn't accept that it was, but that's a side, side issue at this stage. But if you go back to the Neary judgment, in the Neary case, what were the factors that were kind of relevant? And the factors that were relevant from the point of view of the statute of limitations was that this lady knew by virtue of media coverage, her mother had seen, her her friend had seen a programme on television about the whole thing, the whole debacle, and had told her about it. She then 
uh, in the programme it mentioned a particular solicitor who specialised in that area and she then went to that solicitor and having gone to the solicitor then the solicitor took up medical records and then got an expert opinion. So the whole thing about it was that it was only at one... So although she kind of knew from Mm. the programme that there was something wrong or potentially wrong, she suspected that there was something wrong. What the court, what the Supreme Court was grappling with was, did she have the required knowledge? So in other words, had she enough Mm. knowledge that you could say, well, you have enough knowledge in broad terms to do something about this, i.e. issue a writ. And in that particular case, two of the judges said, no, she didn't have sufficient knowledge. And the other judge said she did. But then also said, interestingly enough, which was never picked up subsequently by any case after that, you know, was that there were now, again, because the facts of the case was that what Hardiman said was that actually what she should have done was she should have grounded her case in fraud. So he said there was so much cover up done by the the surgeon at the time that she should have, could have. Oh, one of, very good. Yeah. yeah, one, yeah. Of the, one of the, you see, one of the things that you, there, are, there is one big out clause in the equivalent legislation in the UK, and that is that in the UK you can apply, even though you're outside the time frame, you can apply to the court to exercise its discretion to disapply or disallow the time and bring you within the statute. Right. So that's there in the UK. Well, in the case of fraud, the statute wouldn't be relevant. Exactly. In the case of fraud, that's another out clause. Right, very can, Or disability, for example. So, or there's a number of different ways that you can avoid the statute applying. Mm. And again, I'm kind of diverging, but if there's fraud, which in the in the Neary case, the Supreme Court said, well, you should have grounded it in fraud because mm. there was fraud. But in the case of a disability, if somebody, for example, another thing is that if as a result of the actual injury itself, you're, in, you, you're not in any way capable of determining whether or not there is a cause right. of action because you're not able to make and, any and, kind and of did decision. I get from you earlier on, did you allude to uh, a situation where, okay, I might know there's something wrong with me, uh, but it's only years later when I was chatting to my solicitor, I discovered that I could actually go ahead with a case. So is that the starting point then? Well, or, or might that be the starting <clears throat> point? That might, and again, as you say, that may be the starting yeah. point. Because if you go on to the second Neary case, in the second Neary case, the court held that the starting point was that this lady had heard about it in the media and you see, again, the court is very slow to say things like, oh, by the way, if you hear it in the media, that's enough to start the clock. Yeah. But yeah. with all due respect to the media, of course, Fran, but anyway, the, in, the, in the Neary judgment, for example, the one where the lady was unsuccessful and the court decided that she did have the requisite knowledge, in that particular case, she'd made a complaint to the medical council and she set out in the complaint the details of what she considered was wrong. She said that this was an unnecessary operation and I want you to investigate it. So the key... So she had detail then? Yeah. Well, right. no, but the, the interesting thing is the detail that she had, the key piece of information that she had that the court decided was enough was that she knew the operation was unnecessary. The other lady in the other Supreme Court case 
didn't know didn't it was know a that. mystery. She thought that there was a justifiable reason for it. And interestingly enough, there's a case before the Supreme Court at the moment which involves exactly that type of scenario where the High Court and the Court of Appeal said, well, actually, the requirement for knowledge was grounded on the fact that the person, the injured person, we'll call them, the person mm. making the claim, needed an expert to tell them what exactly it was that went wrong or was wrong with the whole situation. And in that case, what was wrong and what was found to be wrong was that when they were doing the operation, that there was there was literally a failure to do a scan at the time. And if that scan had been done, then everything would be okay. So just kind of to sum it up, your main problem and issue and difficulty with medical negligence in particular is that where is the line between, you know, knowledge? Where does that line fall? You know, where do you come to a point where the clock starts to tick? When does And because you're involved in a situation where you're under care, you're under treatment, there's going to be, cons- mm. you know, sequelae, there's going to be issues that are going to arise. Sometimes operations go wrong and for no particular reason they go so. wrong. So where... Where can you go to determine where the line is? It's a minefield, isn't it? Listen, before I let you go, and briefly, Mm. if you would, I was talking to to, um, Deputy Jackie Cahill earlier on. He was making the point that the government must uh, act where the cost of insurance uh, is concerned because Mm. it's reached a crisis point. He was talking about the cost of insurance working group. He was talking about uh, the government not having the will to work on this because they have now all of the information they they need. And, of course, it comes up time and time again about the cost of, of the legal side mm, of all of this. Mm, mm. Do, you, do you have thoughts on that, uh, John? Because businesses are closing down mm, be- mm. because of the claims mm, and, mm, uh, you mm. know, Well, I, I, have, I mean, I'd, I'd make a couple of observations on it. First of all, I think, like everything else, truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think, first of all, you know, spurious claims or claims that shouldn't be taken shouldn't be taken and I think we have the legislation to deal with that in Ireland and it's been introduced as a result of the insurance industry suggesting that it should be addressed mm. and I think it has been addressed and I, I, I don't think that there's much more that can be done by the courts. If yeah. somebody comes in with a fraudulent claim and it's proven to be a fraudulent claim the, the courts have criminal sanctions and also the ability to dismiss the claim. I think the second thing is that it's been a long-standing standoff, if you want to call it that, between the legal profession and the insurance industry to the effect that, okay, lads, you keep saying that we're driving up the cost of insurance, whereas when all these changes are made, so when we introduce the Book of Quantum, when we introduce the system, the PIAB, you know, the injuries mm-hmm. board system, when we bring in this penalty for people who should should be taking fraudulent claims, insurance premiums don't come down. So what's going on here? What's driving this? Is this a drive to reduce costs so that we can increase your profits? Or is it a drive to actually genuinely make sure that the benefit goes back to the consumer. So in in the reality of it from a without appearing to be defending the legal profession per se, I mean, I have no issue with costs being reviewed 
in the context of whatever cost that mm. I actually charge for the work that I do. And if you think about it for a second, the legal profession is probably one of the few professions where you can come along and go, well, wait a minute here, I'm not happy with that fee. I might have agreed it with you, but I'm not happy with it. I want an independent party to go and adjudicate it. On. And we have an adjudication system in Ireland. And again, the the insurance I'll, I'll call it, let's do it a nose and them, but the insurance industry said, well, you know, we need some way of controlling legal costs, and the way to control legal costs is the way that's been implemented, which is literally to introduce somebody who will oversee legal oh. costs. Alright, John, good to see you. Thanks thanks very Thank much you. indeed. John Lynch from Lynch Solicitor.